Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And especially being this is Jason's uh, first week here, a super brief bit of review. We're doing this class on the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, which is the official confession of faith of the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, and other Reformed Presbyterian denominations, um, mainly in America and Scotland. Um, but, you know, the way that the PCA would say it was, well, the Bible's our real only authority. But then second to that, under that, submitted to that, would be the Westminster Confession of Faith. And included would be the larger and the shorter catechism. You know, catechism, again, if you've been around Presbyterians a lot, you're probably familiar with that word. If you're not, it just sounds weird. But catechism is a type of teaching where you do question and answer, right? I mean, a lot of people are familiar with the first question of the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Um, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. All right. uh, Piper kind of made that re-famous maybe 20 years ago if, if you weren't familiar with it. And when the shorter catechism was first developed, the idea was it was for children. It was for families to use and family devotions to work with children. So mostly what we're going to do this quarter is go along with the Westminster Confession of Faith, drop in and drop out at different places and kind of dig underneath where did they get this from in the Bible, why, how, you know, how is it applicable, why is it important. Ah, but from time to time we will go to one of the catechisms. So this morning we're going to go to the shorter catechism, partially because part of what we talked about last week was sanctification. So we're going to talk about that more. So this is, um, and again, I've said, if you have questions, you can email me and I'll do my best. And a couple of you have done that, and like I said, I'll do my best. We'll see if we get there. Uh, But this is the shorter catechism, uh, question number 35. Okay, What is sanctification? That's the question. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, where we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, so uh, it's interesting. I think it's question 33. Uh, It's just a few questions before this is what is justification? And the question about justification, the answer starts out the exact same way. Justification is a work of God's free grace. So that's maybe the most important similarity between justification and sanctification. They're both the work of God's free grace. But there's two main words that I want us to focus on here about sanctification in verse 35. It says, where we are renewed. And just think about that word renewed. Renewed has the idea of somebody is doing something to me. It's more like I am a, I won't say passive, although I'm tempted to, but I'm a recipient. Somebody is making me new. We are renewed. But then the second phrase says, and are enabled. And enabled has the sense of, I am being empowered to go out and do something. And so we see this synergistic work of God and me that has to come together in the sanctification process. All right, so that's what we want to look at this morning. Um, And we're going to start in Acts. And, And here's the reason I want to start here. One of the dangers in ministry, I know a lot of you are in full-time ministry, and even if you're not in full-time ministry, you know, if, if you're in the class, there must be some desire to know more God's Word so that you can grow personally and you can at least help other people grow probably at times. If nobody else, you know, your, your spouse and kids at times. One of the dangers is 
that we can kind of pick out our one or two or three favorite passages, favorite hobby horses, favorite themes, and kind of only ever talk about that. I mean, I have heard multiple people say, most pastors really only have one sermon, and they just preach it over and over again from different texts. Okay. Um, now, that maybe is a little extreme, but, but there's a point there. And there's a danger there. Okay. Because a lot of times what we do is we think about our own experience or our own fears or whatever it may be. And then in a sense, we're always just kind of ministering to ourselves in the crowd, whether that's really what the crowd needs or not, whether that's even what the text says or not. Does that make sense? So Acts chapter 20, skip down to verse 26. This is Paul. He's speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And part of what he's doing is kind of reviewing his ministry. And I love this phrase, Acts chapter 20, verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, those are pretty strong words. I mean, essentially, Paul is saying, if one of you doesn't believe and dies and goes to hell, it's not my fault. Your blood's not on my hands. I have no responsibility. And how can I so boldly and confidently say that? Because when I preach to you, I didn't just preach my favorite themes. I didn't just preach the easy stuff or the soft stuff. I preached the whole counsel of God. Now, that doesn't literally mean that I don't think that he read the entire Old Testament to the church. Maybe he did. But he certainly, there was a holistic sense of his preaching. Okay? And that's what's good about churches that not necessarily all the time, but from time to time, and this is one of the good things Broward does, says we're going to choose the book of the Bible and we're just going to go through it. And we're going to preach the easy and obvious verses and we're going to preach the hard and awkward verses and we're not going to skip any themes because it forces us out of our tendency to just do what we like. Now, why, why am I starting like this? Because of this. In the Reformation, okay, when uh, so many were breaking away from the authority of the Catholic Church. And that was still a lot of the shadow that was overextending the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Justification was probably the main issue of the day. The debate between the Protestants and the Catholics about justification. The second biggest debate of the day would have been about the sacraments. What especially the Lord's Supper versus the Mass and the meaning of all that. So when you read through the Confession, Sometimes, I mean, just in modern day, we're like, why is there so much stuff in here about the Lord's Supper? It's, it's overwhelming at times. Because that was one of the main battles they were fighting with the Catholic Church. What is the real significance of communion? Okay. Now, I think in our day, one of the main battles in the Reformed Evangelical Church is over the topic of sanctification. And the, and the Confession addresses it very well. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it today. Okay. Um, it was a big issue then. It wasn't near as big of an issue maybe then as it was now. So just just brief introduction. When you confuse justification, right? And by justification, we just mean when somebody initially becomes a Christian at the instant of salvation and God and the cosmic courtroom of the universe legally declares that person righteous. They haven't done one good work yet, and yet God is saying, you're as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ because I have taken your sin record put it on the Christ on the cross, and I have taken his righteousness record, and I put it onto you. So in my eyes as a judge, you are 100% righteous and worthy. You're justified. I can adopt you into my family. That's justification. Sanctification, as we said last week, 
the way that we're going to use this word, the way the confession uses this word, okay, it can be used in different ways, is the lifelong process from the day that you become a Christian until the day that you see Jesus face to face. And what's happening in that process? You're being renewed. Your, your whole man is being made into the image of God, into the image of Christ. You're being empowered more and more, slowly but surely, to fight sin, to hate sin, to kill sin, to be dead to sin, and to live towards righteousness. Some people talk about mortification, putting to death the sinful deeds of the body, okay? And vivification, bringing to life the new life in the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. Maybe some of the greatest error in church history in the church is getting justification and sanctification mixed up. If you put sanctification in the place of justification, you're, you're a legalist. You think that you're saved by your works. I've got to go ahead and die to sin. I've got to go ahead and fight sin on my own and kill sin on my own. I've got to go ahead in some sense engender Christian virtue and that will make me worthy and then God will justify me. It doesn't work that way. That's a, that's a deadly error. But in the same sense, if you put justification in the place of sanctification, well, God legally declared me righteous. He's pleased with me in Christ. So now this whole lifelong Christianity, I can just do whatever the heck I want to do. Justify, justify, justify. That's all I know how to talk about. Justification is so important. And all sanctification really is is just understanding my justification more and you'll become a lawless person who doesn't take the law of God serious. You don't take holiness serious. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. And listen, this is important. Um, maybe I'll do another whiteboard drawing here. Sure, everybody enjoyed my whiteboard drawing? No, I won't because my whiteboard drawing from last week is still up there. Um, I'll do it. I'll do it at the bottom. Um, okay, let's say in the middle here, in blue, you know, see, so yeah, this is the perfect right Christian balance, okay? And we'll say this direction is legalism over here. And this would be the most extreme legalist in the universe. Uh, the worst Pharisee of all times, trying to work his way to heaven. Okay. And then, this would be the way of lawlessness, or sometimes we call it antinomianism, being against the law. And this would be the most lawless person ever, right? This is the biggest party animal that grew up in the Bible Belt, that's so happy that Jesus died for my sins because I can party my brains out for His glory and just keep getting more forgiveness and then get to go to heaven and be forgiven as well. Now here's the thing. None of us are Jesus. So none of us have the perfect balance. Most of us have a tendency based on our personality, based on our upbringing, that tends to make us lean one way or the other. And one of the real practical things that I want us to think about is know thyself. Know thyself. Because, you know, if you have a real danger of being a legalist, it probably would not be best for you to go to a church where the pastor every single Sunday was preaching against lawlessness. Does that make sense? I mean, I've known this type of situation where a guy that was a pretty gifted evangelist moves to a town and he sets up a Bible study. And as an evangelist, like a traveling evangelist going and doing conference speakers, he's amazing, right? He can preach Matthew 7 better than anybody and make half the crowd doubt their salvation. But when this guy plants in one city and has a weekly men's Bible study and he's just hammering every week, are you sure that you're saved? Have you really surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? And you've got this guy over here who actually has an overwhelmingly moral life. 
but he doesn't experience enough joy in his quiet time every morning. And then he's doubting his salvation. Right? Because he's got super evangelist over here beating him overhead every day with, you need to repent him. Not a good combination. Does that make sense? And the vice versa is true as well. If you got a person over here that's always pressing the limits on, well, what is drunkenness? You know, how do we really define drunkenness? Who knows? It doesn't really matter. I'm forgiven. Let's just have a good time for the glory of Jesus. And you got a preacher that was more of a legalist in his past, so he's always just, God's not mad at anybody. God's not mad at you. That's like his only message that he knows how to preach every week. Cheer up. Everything's going to be fine. The grace of God is warm. Just dive in. That, that's the only message. What do you think it's going to do this guy? In some sense, it's just going to justify him in his own mind in his sin. So, this is a long introduction to say, to whatever degree you're involved in personal ministry, even if that's only discipling your kids, know yourself. Know your tendency. If you lean this way, be able to press against your tendency when you need to. And then get to know the people that you're ministering to. I started some pre-marriage counseling with a couple last night. One of the things I always like to do to start off with is tell me your testimony. And nine times out of ten when I do this, I know the guy really well. You know, it's like I was a part of his testimony. Uh, and, but it's like I don't know the girl hardly at all. So I really tell me your testimony. And so as this girl's telling me her testimony, you know, I mean, she's, you know, in tears talking about struggles with being a legalist, struggling with doubt in her salvation. So part of what I'm trying to say to this about to be husband is, I hope you're listening to this. Because part of your job in her life is going to be able to, in a healthy, biblically balanced way, preach grace to her. Right? Because if he's a little bit more of a rigid, disciplined type guy now, because he used to be this kind of guy, that could be a dangerous combination. You see what I'm talking about? Because what he's thinking is, if I really want to press towards the middle of biblical balance, i got to be a little harder on myself. Because I used to play too fast and loose with my son. But if he brings that kind of leadership into her life and her struggles over here, it's going to be bad. Now, I don't want us to be overwhelmed. And, and, and let me just say, here, here's, the, here's the best thing I can say. Because sometimes that's confusing. You're like, well, what if I'm teaching a Bible study and there's 40 people and I don't know where they're at? Or even if I do, if there's 12 people and they're all over the map. <laughs> Stick to the text, brothers and sisters. You know, one of the things that Piper has said so wisely is the closer that you are tethered to the biblical text, the safer you should feel, the stronger you should feel, the more dogmatic you should feel. To the degree that you kind of start pressing into, let me give some suggested application, that's not necessarily bad, but it can be dangerous. The further you get away from the text, the less dogmatic you should be. Does that make sense? And, and Paul's telling us, the key is just preach the whole counsel of God's Word. Right. Um, all right. All that's by way of introduction. Uh, everybody flip over to Matthew chapter 11. I just want us to look at two passages this morning, really. And in a sense, we're going to look at the two greatest teachers of all time and see how they address this in their own preaching and teaching ministry. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. So, Matthew chapter 11, 
And let's skip down to verse 28. And remember, all this is what we're talking about sanctification. Now, this is a very famous passage that we might not think about as much when we talk about sanctification. The word's not in the text, okay? But it, it's, it's a very helpful text based on what we're talking about. Matthew chapter 11, this is the Lord Jesus, and look at what he says, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, um, you study this in context. What is he talking? He's not talking about people that are farmers and they've been out in the field working hard. And he's like, come with me and we'll have a siesta. I'll make you free bread and free wine. And I know you had a hard day in the work. That's not what he's talking about. He is talking metaphorically to people that grew up in a very legalistic, pharisaical system. They're very aware of their sin burden. They feel the burden on their back. And in some sense, they are laboring to try to get rid of their sin and prove their righteousness to be free from that burden of sin. That burden of their debt that they owe to their Creator. And let me just say, there's probably a lot of people in our culture and day that say, I don't feel any sin debt. I don't even know if I believe in God. Okay? I mean, there are a lot of people in our culture that say things like that. But here's my experience. You talk to them long enough kindly enough, warmly enough to get them to drop their guard and open up with you. And I guarantee you, there's a sense of shame in there. There's a sense of doubt and fear and worry in there. And here's part of the reason I know that. It's not just experience from having talked to people around the world about Jesus. It's this. It's Romans chapter 1 makes it really clear. I mean, Romans 1, you know, says, somebody else said this before me, but I love it. Essentially, God doesn't believe in atheists. It doesn't matter if people say they're atheists. At the depths of their heart, they're not really atheists. Everybody deep down knows there is a God, I'm a sinner, and I deserve His wrath, and it's coming. That, that, that is imprinted on every human soul. It might be distorted, it might be suppressed, but it's there. They all feel You can't shirk this burden of responsibility that I have a sin debt, and a day of wrath and judgment is coming. Right? Okay, many try to, many try to pretend like they're not under that burden, but they are, and they still feel it. And that's where so much of the shame and the guilt and the drive and the worry and, and the drug addiction and stuff comes from. Just put it to sleep. Just numb it out. Okay? Now, what Jesus is saying is, if you come to me, right, if you come to me in a saving way, in a trusting way, in a resting way, in a hoping way, in a believing way, I can give you rest in your soul. At the deepest level, why? Because I can take the sin debt off of your back, put it onto my back, pay the price, and you can be 100% free from that sin debt forever. It's beautiful. It's rest. It's overwhelming. Okay. Now, but he doesn't stop there. Am I right? That, that, that is a beautiful, sweet, metaphorical verse about justification. But he keeps going. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now see, I have heard people talk about this passage before, and I'm sure you have, and they make it sound like, there was this heavy yoke of burden on your back, but now that you're with Jesus, there's no yoke anymore. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? That sounds powerful, doesn't it? That sounds freeing, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like justification theology, does it not? And yet, that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> he just said you're under the wrong yoke. No. 
a yoke. Y'all, y'all know, a yoke was a um, object that they would use in farming. You take two oxen and you would yoke them together. It kind of looked like a figure eight. You put it around their neck so they could drag a plow through the field. The reality is, Jesus says, everybody's got a yoke. The issue is just do you have a good yoke or a bad yoke? Do you have a yoke that'll burden you or a yoke that'll give you rest? Think about Romans 6 for a minute. I'm not going to look there, but, but part of the whole idea, if you read the whole chapter, is everybody's a slave. The question is not, are you a slave or are you free? The question is, who are you a slave to? And are you a slave to a good master? Are you a slave to the evil master, sin personified? Because he will wreck and ruin your life and force you into more and more sin and the payment you will get in the end will be eternal death. Or are you a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the most benevolent dictator who's ever lived? And he will love and lead you into grace into more and more righteousness and holiness and sanctification and the rewards you will get at the end of all of that will be eternal bliss with him. Does that make sense? So if 28 is a beautiful metaphorical verse about justification versus 29 and 30 are beautiful metaphorical verses about sanctification and we need to know how to talk about both. There is a burden for us to carry, but we don't carry it alone. We carry it with Christ. We carry it in partnership. And part of what times they would often do, the farmers, is you would take an older, stronger, wiser, more experienced ox who had been plowing the fields for years. And you would kind of take the young and up-and-coming, strong, strapping ox who hadn't really been yoked up yet. And you would put the son ox with the daddy ox and you'd yoke them together. And it was twofold purpose. It was training the younger ox. If you just walk side by side with daddy ox, you'll know the right way to go. If you try to stray and go away, the yoke will pinch your neck. It'll hurt. The reality is, to the degree that you will walk and keep in step with daddy ox, you almost won't even feel the burden of the weight of the yoke because more of it will fall onto the neck and the shoulders of the daddy ox. Does that make sense? And guys, that's a beautiful picture of how sanctification works. To the degree that I'm trying to keep in step with Jesus, to the degree that I'm trying to say, I want to walk so closely with Jesus that if he was literally physically standing here and somebody was looking, there'd only be one shadow because I'd be that close to him. The, The pain and the burden to some degree goes away. Now, I'm not talking about there's not suffering in life. I'm talking about the spiritual pain of the fight with sin, which we ought to care about a lot more, right? Now, here's a very important distinction. Some of you probably heard it before. Maybe this will be new for some of you. But there's an important distinction in the Bible. Okay? It doesn't necessarily use these exact words, but uh, the principle. Positional righteousness versus practical righteousness. Positional righteousness. Once you become a Christian, you trust in Jesus, you're justified. Positionally, you're 100% righteous. You're just as righteous as Jesus is. Practically, I mean, let's just do this really quick, okay? Uh, We'll do it for people in the classroom and people on Zoom. Listen, lots of people have testimonies, right, where they're like, I'm not exactly sure when I became a Christian. 
right? I mean, like, even I, I'm like, I think it was when I was seven, maybe it was when I was 15. I'm not really sure. And other people have testimonies that are like, it was somewhere sophomore year in college, right? Somewhere in 1998, but I don't know if it was January or December. But then some people are like Saul of Tarsus, like, no, 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 I, I, I'm pretty darn sure when I got knocked off my horse, I tell you the day and the hour. So if you feel like you have a testimony where you're like, I'm almost positive, I can get real specific, like day, time, place, just see a show of hands really quick. Okay, I got about three or four on the Zoom, and I got Jacob here. So Jacob's in class, so he gets to go. So Jacob, very loudly, again, 30-second version, tell us kind of when and where, how you became a Christian. Taco Bell, Panama City Beach, Florida, Clay Hubbard, told me I wasn't a Christian, explained the thief on the cross. Okay. Taco Bell, Panama City Beach, Summer Beach Project, comes to Christ. How much more practically righteous were you the day after Taco Bell than were you the day before Taco Bell? Incrementally. Yeah. Incrementally, he says. Very small. And that's the way it ought to be, right? My wife has had four children. I've had the privilege of being there in the room when all four of the little babies come out, right? And the next day, it's like, how much have they grown? Not any that I can tell. The next week, how much have they grown? Not any that I can tell. Right now, the moms are like, no, no, they've grown, right? And even then, you know, you have friends asking, like, how old is your child? And you're like, ah, you know, a couple months. The wife's like, no, it's seven weeks. But here's the point. (laughs) Just think about the way that it works with normal human physical development. You compare me. I got my 46th birthday coming up compared to what I looked like when I was born in Atlanta, Georgia 46 years ago. It's a pretty radical difference for better or worse, all right? Probably not as cute. But there's obvious difference. If you compared me 46 seconds, minutes, even days later, would there be much difference? No. Spiritually, it's the same thing. Okay? My positional righteousness is instant, it's full, it cannot dim, it cannot wax, it cannot wane, it is locked in, it never changes once somebody has genuinely put their faith in Christ. But your practical righteousness is going to be an up and down roller coaster ride. Again, I did this my, uh, this diagram I did in seminary class last semester for those of you who are there. But it's such a good one, I'll do it again. All right. This is the normal Christian life. You start down here in sin and you start to grow. And it's probably going to look like this roller coaster ride high highs, low lows. Sometimes you're going backwards, right? But what ought to be happening slowly but surely, let's just take me, you know, maybe 30 years of Christian life, is if you track the trajectory of my whole spiritual life. More and more, my practical righteousness has been growing more and more into godliness. Does that make sense? But if you try to evaluate it on a day, week, month basis, you might be in despair. Or you might be really arrogant. Or you might think you're going in the wrong direction. But over the long haul, there ought to be real growth. Now, the difference in positional righteousness, practical righteousness. Here's another illustration I've shared, so I'll give the very brief version, but I think it's very helpful. As a Christian, you ought to be primarily relating to God as a father, not as a judge. Right? The non-Christian, whether they want to or not, whether they think they are or not, they are primarily relating to God as a judge. 
They can sing all the sweet songs they want to about Him being their Father, and in some sense, He's the Creator of everyone. But He is a judge, and an opposing judge, a righteous judge, a just judge to anyone who's not in Christ. But once you're in Christ, the gavel has fallen. You will never enter in the courtroom of the universe again. He's your daddy. And he's the best daddy you can imagine. And even if you had the best human father, he's a dim, he's a dim reflection of what Father God is. And even if you had a bad human father, all the negative emotions you feel towards your bad human father is because instinctively you know what a good human father is supposed to be like. So whatever that dream is of a good human father, they're just a little tiny imprint of the one true heavenly father. Okay. Now, uh, I, I heard one guy say it like this one time. Have you ever heard this illustration? I wish I had a white handkerchief or something. I don't think I do. Let's see here. Okay, I have a napkin. So we're going to say this napkin represents the righteousness of Christ. All right? This represents my sinful life. This is a good illustration. Okay? Here's my sinful life. When I become a Christian, justification is the righteousness of Christ, in a sense, is just slapped over all that, right? I'm covered. Right? Now, we've heard people talk this way God doesn't even see our sin, He doesn't even know, right? But here's the reality. In the cosmic courtroom of the universe, this is true. God doesn't even see or think about your sin. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. But listen, God's omniscient. He knows all things, right? He knows what's under there. He's not a moron. And listen, He knows what's under there partially because He loves you so much. And He is dedicating Himself to turning this old sinful life to make it really look like and be the actual righteousness of Christ practically lived out. Does that make sense? That's a glorious promise, guys. It's an overwhelming promise because it's going to be a painful process to get there. But it's worth it. It's so worth it. A fish doesn't get freedom by getting out of the water, right? If little Nemo or whoever the talking fish are in the Disney movies like, you know, I just want to be out there on the land with the humans and not have to be trapped in the water anymore, getting free from the oppression of water will kill him. We're saved in salvation not to be free to go sin and do whatever we want. We're free to be made righteous and to like it. Not just to do it by mere duty, but to literally delight in righteousness. Delight yourselves in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. That's His dream for us. His word is not oppressive. His yoke is really not burdensome. Remember 1 John says, His commands are not burdensome. Let's just be honest. You ever read that verse before and like, maybe I'm not a Christian because a lot of His commands still feel burdensome to me, right? To the degree that sin is still living in my heart and I'm still chasing after it, they will feel burdensome. Why? Because the daddy ox is walking that way and I'm trying to veer off in a different direction and it's pinching my neck and it hurts. But the degree that I can get close to Him say, I'm walking with you. All right. I don't have to keep the law, the moral law of God. I do not have to keep it as a way of acceptance. Right? Christ kept it as a way of acceptance for me. I do have to keep it as a way of obedience. I'm not a perfect father. Okay? I'm a halfway decent father. 
on a scale of one to 100, I get at least a 51%. My kids have plenty of sin, okay? We won't give them a grade right now. But here's what I'll say. My kids have often been disciplined. They will probably be disciplined again. They'll never be disowned. And for true Christians, we will be disciplined by the Father. But even in that moment of discipline, the pain, the chastisement, we must know, I'm not being disowned, I'm not being kicked out, I'm not being taken back to the courtroom of the universe. Okay? He's my Savior, He's also my Lord. Here's John Gill speaking in this passage. Rest is to be enjoyed in, though not for, the observance of Christ's commands. That makes sense? The way that I get spiritual rest now, practically, the way I get to experience the light of that rest, is when I obey. And it's not because I obey and God says, He deserves it, so let's give Him a little rest. It's just like, no, no, He just made a promise. Hey, buddy, if you'll come stand over here, you'll get rest. It's just a promise. And when I, when I obey under His promise, I get the blessing. I heard Matt Chandler give an example one time that... Uh, if you go to a house and you want to take a shower, here's the faucet. You have to, if you want the water to get on your head, you have to go stand under the faucet. Does that mean you're earning it? No, it just means that's where the water comes out. Well, where does the water of God's blessing comes out? It comes out in obedience. Not because we're earning it, because that's just where He's promised it to show up. Now, can God ever show His blessings to us even in the midst of our sin and disobedience? Absolutely. He does it all the time. He's so gracious that sometimes He does that. I, mean, I bet we could all give a testimony of that, right? I was in some of my worst places doing some of my most selfish, stupid things and God still blessed my socks off. That's how kind and gracious He is. But I don't have a right to expect that. Because that's not what His promise is. Okay, a couple more thoughts we'll move on. Um, think about Psalm 1. Right? Blessed are the people. Basically what Psalm 1 says is, Blessed are the people who obey. You don't earn it, but you want to get it. That's how you get it. One time, let me tell this story. Okay, um, Everybody flip over to Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to look at what Paul and Jesus have to say about this. But as you're turning, I'll tell this story. One time I, we were going down to the beach, probably for a beach project. And this is when my kids were really little. And, you know, they're going nuts in the car, so excited to be at the beach. And, Dad, when we get to the beach, will you take us to the ocean? Yes, you promise. And that, that conversation is happening like the first two hours of the car ride down to the beach. Well, the second two hours of the car ride, it's like the weather starts coming in. And so by the time we actually get to the, you know, beach, it's like, it's not a hurricane, but it's like there are bad storms and wind and thunder and the whole nine yards, you know. And my wife is like, I don't know that it's best that you take our four kids to the beach now. And, it's, you know, and I was like, well, I promised. So I said, okay, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. We are going to go to the beach, okay? And we're going to walk in, okay, to where the water comes up to the youngest kid's knees. Here's the rules, right? We're going in together. We're going in as deep, okay, that when the water hits Sophia's knees, that's my youngest daughter, nobody can go deeper. And you have to stay where Dad can touch you. Right? So I don't, I'm not like in, I'm in the NBA. I don't have a very long wingspan. You have to basically stay where I can touch you at any point. Those are the rules. Now, what am I doing right now? Am I trying to be a mean, oppressive, controlling tyrant and ruin their life? 
No, I'm trying to let them experience much joy as they can in this experience and keep them safe at the same time. And in some sense, what I was saying, hey guys, if you want to enjoy the most of my blessing and my protection in your life, stay close to me. Now, if one of my sons had said, I'm running down this way, it wasn't going to be, well, I don't love you anymore, so have fun. Nothing about my love for him would have changed. But something about my ability to bless him would have changed. Does that make sense? Now, that illustration is not perfect because God can do whatever he wants. But I hope you get the, the tenor of it. There's no, there's no sin that can ever change God's love for his people. But God's pleasure in, God's enjoyment of, God's delight in, us does go up and down based on our obedience and our sin. And if you struggle with that, let me just give you one more practical example. Wait till you have kids and it will make all the sense in the world. I mean, I remember when one of our sons had done something really bad, really disrespectful. He's like, go to your room to wait till I calm down, right? Because if I spank you right now, we might be in trouble. I mean, I was angry. And when I thought I had gotten down to, okay, I'm calm enough to go spank him. But I'm still angry. I think he had done something, you know, said something really kind of harsh to his mom or something. And I'm going towards the room. I really, I remember stopped and I looked at Lena. You know, and I, I'm in the midst of my anger. And I think it was righteous anger. Like maybe it was the one time in my life I actually experienced righteous anger, right, in defense of my wife. And, uh, but I stopped. And even in the midst of my anger, I looked at my wife and I said, I still really love him. And in that moment, it was just, listen, there were these conflicting emotions seemingly in my heart of, I still really love this kid. There's so much about him that I like and I'm drawn to, and yet I'm angry at him. I mean, I'm about to hurt him, you know? Not severe, but I'm going to sting him, right? <laughs> and listen, if me as a sinful, simple little father can feel both those emotions, certainly our eternal, perfect Heavenly Father, at the exact same moment, can say, I have perfect, righteous, saving love for you. And yet when you sin, I'm angry. I'm grieved. Right? But His anger lasts but for a moment. His love's for a lifetime. It's for eternity. He delights in us. Okay. Galatians chapter 4. You know, if, if I should have done this before we even turned here, but I think I did this in... Last seminary class I taught, and some of you guys are in here, so you ought to know the answer. You know, if you wanted to pick the one book in the whole Bible that's about grace and justification and forgiveness and mercy, it's Galatians, right? Some of the reformers talked about it being like the Magna Carta of Christian freedom. Six chapters. And really, it's like the first four and a half are all about justification by faith alone, not by works. So we're going to pick up, we're going to read... A lot, almost two chapters. We're not going to necessarily drill down near as deep as we just did on those two verses, so don't worry. Okay? Um, but remember, that's the context that Paul, in a sense, is concerned as a spiritual father of this church that they seem to be turning away from the pure, simple gospel of salvation, justification by faith alone, not by works. So we're going to start in Galatians chapter 4. And no, it's in this letter and a lot of others, Paul loves to use legal language to talk about salvation. But that's not the only language he talks about. 
And that's part of what I'm getting at. As we teach the Scriptures, if we want to give the full picture of justification and the full picture of sanctification, we won't just be able to use legal language. Sometimes we're going to have to switch and use family language. And you're going to see Paul doing this here. So Galatians chapter 4, starting verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Right. So here's legal language. The Lord Jesus, even as a Jew, was born into the world under the moral law. Okay, Under the covenant of works. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. So redemption, justification comes first, and then what comes immediately after it? Adoption. And because you are His Son, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So in a sense, when we talk to God the Father, we can talk to God the Father with this same kind of intimacy that the Lord Jesus Christ talked to Him when He was on planet Earth. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, okay, so there's that idea of being known by God in a saving way, in a personal way, in a loving way, foreknowledge. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons, years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So what he's saying is they were turning back to a lot of the ceremonial law, like circumcision. They were thinking, maybe I'm not really saved. If I'm a Gentile, I've trusted in the Jewish Messiah, but I hadn't done all the right works and ceremonies of like circumcision, maybe I'm not a real Christian. And he's saying, you're going back into a slavery. You're putting yourself back under a covenant of works. You're acting like you haven't already been adopted. And he's concerned about them. Okay, now brother, so he's saying, but I really think you're the real deal. I really think you're in the faith. He's pleading with them. I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They may, they, he's talking about the Judaizers. Those were the false teachers. Those were probably people that had been Pharisees, that had professed faith in Christ. Were they real believers and just very immature and didn't understand the gospel? Or were they false believers who were really undercover legalists? Let me pause here and go back to our, one of our many charts on the board. Uh, the blue one at the bottom. We said here's the perfect middle biblical balance that none of us hit. Here's the most extreme legalistic Pharisee of all time. This guy is obviously not a Christian. If he doesn't repent and change, he's going to hell when he dies. Here's the most lawless partying animal parting his brains out. If he doesn't repent, he's going to hell when he dies. Not a real Christian. But here's the thing. We all have a little bit of either lawlessness or legalism in our life. Here's another side note. What happens to a lot of us is we tend to be like a drunk driver for Jesus and we kind of swerve back and forth, right? I was a legalist yesterday. I'll be a lawless person today. Uh, Back to legalism because that felt bad last night. Well, that was too strict. You understand? The goal is to try to keep it in the center of the road. But here's here's the point I want to make for right now. How far away from the middle, perfect biblical balance, can you go in the direction of legalism when you cross this mysterious line when it's like, well, that, that person is not just an immature Christian anymore. 
They, they're not even a Christian. You understand the question? Exact same question on this one. How far can you go into lawlessness where you're like, well, this person is just an immature, struggling, brand new baby Christian to the point where it's like, there's never been any life change in this person's life. They, they, there's no way they're a Christian. So many times, you don't know. You won't be able to know about somebody else you're ministering to. Sometimes it's even hard to know about yourself. Right? This is, this is the, the sobering part of the lesson. Now, I remember uh, when Reverend Barker was still alive, the founding pastor of this church, having a conversation with him, and I was saying, you know, Reverend Barker, if you're talking to somebody... And I think I was talking more on this side, the lawless side. And you don't know. This, the way I said it was, you don't know if this person is somebody like King David who's in the depth of their sin and they've just been backslidden for nine months in their hard-hearted cover-up of adultery and murder. I've, I don't think I've actually ever ministered to somebody you know, committed murder. I have adultery. So, they're nine months in their hard-hearted cover-up of their adultery. But I think, that, I think they're King David. I think they're just a backslidden, genuine believer. You understand? Or, how do you know if they're not more of a Judas? Somebody that's saying all the right things, but the reality is there's been no heart change. They're not a real believer. And I think we all know this, right? You can't lose your salvation. There's no such thing as losing salvation. There's just, did you ever really have your salvation? And Reverend Barker, you know, if you ever got to spend time with Reverend Barker, part of what was so great about him is he could take such complex things and make them so simple. He said, well, it doesn't really matter. And I'm like, well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? And he said, well, he said, the answer for both, your, your David example and your Judas example is the exact same. The answer for both is repent and believe. For your Judas example, it would be repenting and believing for the very first time. Right? For your backslidden David example, it would be maybe repenting and believing for the millionth time. But the answer is always the same. Does that make sense? And guys, the answer for me and you, if we're having a dark night of the soul and we start doubting, one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, do I want to repent and believe right now? Do I want to repent of my lawlessness or do I want to repent of my legalism? And do I want to trust in Christ alone as my Savior and my Lord? And that's a great question to ask people, especially for you guys that are doing student ministries, right, in the Bible Belt. You're going to come up against people like, I, I had some experience at youth camp where I cried and, you know, they had me come down front and ring a bell and I, I don't know if that was real or, you know, then I've been in college and, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And if someone's like, it doesn't matter. You don't have to figure that out. I mean, it does matter if you're a Christian or not. But to, to, to be clear on your salvation presently, you don't have to get clear on a timeline. You don't have to have a testimony like Jacob to be a real Christian. Make sense? You can just say, do you want to repent and do you want to believe right now? Can you hold the question till the end? Is that okay? All right. We'll do Q&A at the end for everybody who wants to do Q&A. So... Let's keep going. Um, Galatians 4. There's a lot here. 
For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all. Okay, I'll Skip down to chapter 5. Well, I, I did want to read verse 19. So, chapter 4, verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's a good minister. I think you're a real Christian, but you're a little immature child. I am trying to see sanctification happen in you. I'm trying to see Christ formed in you. That's a way to talk about sanctification. I'm trying to see you grow up in Christ. Skip down to chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. He wants you to be free. Don't go back to legalism. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. If you start trying to add works to make yourself feel more saved, it's like you're ruining the gift that Christ gave you. Because Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. You don't have to do anything. Okay? Um, Now, skip down to verse 13. He's hammering. Grace, grace, grace. And then verse 13 he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And then, again, for sake of time, we're not going to read it all, but you could go all the way down to the end of the chapter. And now he's preaching against this error. Don't run off into lawlessness. This grace is so rich, it's so free, that one of the dangers of this grace is you can almost get drunk off of the goodness of this grace and want to abuse it. And don't do it. Be so overwhelmed with how good He's been to you that you want to live a life to please and honor Him as a way to say thank you. Dallas Willard has this great quote where he says, Grace isn't against effort. It's against earning. It's not wrong to work. It's not wrong to hate sin and fight sin and do everything you can to try to kill sin. It is wrong if you start, in a sense, saying, well, because I got up and had a good quiet time and shared my faith two times last week, God owes me. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't owe us anything except for hell. But He's promised us all good things. Two quick quotes. Matthew Henry. The life of a Christian is a race wherein he must run and hold on if he would obtain the prize. It is not enough that we run in this race by profession of Christianity, but we must run well by living up to that profession. The liberty we enjoy as Christians is not a licentious liberty. Though Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, yet he has not freed us from the obligation of it. The moral law that when you don't obey it perfectly curses you to hell. If you're in Christ, you're free from that. But I'm still supposed to obey the moral law as a way to please Christ. John Calvin. It is not our doctrine that the faith which justifies is alone. Is that that shocking that's coming from Calvin? No, there's a semicolon. The sentence doesn't end there. We maintain that it is invariably accompanied by good works. Only we contend that faith alone is sufficient for justification. But when the question comes to be in what manner we are justified, we then set aside all works. You see what he's saying? I mean, it's, it's just said in a little bit more technical way. Yes, you're saved by grace alone, but that grace never stays alone. The grace alone that saves you always turns into works to obey Him. Okay, so um, Matthew Henry. Let us evidence our good principles by our good practices. 
The good principle of justification ought to lead to good practices of growing in godliness and sanctification. Okay. Two stories and we're done. One of my sons, you know, when he was younger, he'd always be like, you and mom are too strict and y'all blah, 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 blah. And now he's a little bit older and just a tad bit wiser and he's come back and he's like, I'm actually thankful for how strict y'all were. I mean, maybe one or two things I wish y'all to lightened up on. But for the most part, he said, I've started to realize. He said, I've had some friends that kind of had the parents that were total absentee, you know, and they were off jet-setting and just let their kids do whatever. And now I'm seeing not just what a wreck and disaster their lives have become, but also how some of those kids struggle with, did my parents really love me if they basically didn't parent me? And so my son in college is able to say, I, I still don't agree with all the specific things you did, Dad. But I know for sure that you love me, and it was evidenced by you getting all up in my business, and I'm really thankful. Makes sense? Yeah. Here's the last thought that I think would be good for us. I came from, not perfect, but a pretty good, godly family. My wife, you know, heard me talk about this before, but she came from non-Christian, broken home. Okay, and so I think it was when we were engaged. I remember she and I were having a conversation, and I was just trying to understand more about my fiancé to be. And I'm asking her questions. Part of what I was asking her, because she's talking about all the chaos in her home and her deadbeat dad who was passive and hardly came around. And You know, part of I'm, I'm like, well, did you, did you think that your parents loved you or not? Did you feel like your parents loved you? And she said, you know, honestly, she said, it just depended on the day. It just depended on what might happen. With my mom and my dad. I mean, she said, Sometimes I really felt like my mom loves me. You know, and then, then based on some stuff, there'd be other times where I would really question. And then she said, oh, my dad. See, there'd be a lot of times I didn't think that he loved me. I didn't think he cared. But then it'd be, he'd do something. I'd think, oh, maybe he really does. But it was, and as I was just listening to her and kind of feeling sad for her, here's the thought that went through my mind. And at this point, I would have been 21 years old. I've never even considered the question if my parents loved me. That makes sense? It was not like for 21 years I'd said, do my parents love me today? Yes, yes. It's not that I asked the question and every time I answered yes. The question never even crossed my mind. Because the ocean that the little fish Olin was swimming in was the unconditional love of his parents that was so obvious it was like the air I breathed. Does that make sense? Now listen. I wish you could know my parents because they were not these modern self-esteem junkies, you know, that are like, you should be on American Idol and take over the world. They were not afraid to discipline me. They were not afraid to tell me when I was in sin and being a moron, all that kind of stuff. But their love was full and it was free and it was unconditional. And that's what the Christian experience is supposed to be like. That the love of God is just the atmosphere that we live in and it is never questioned. Because the only thing that could make us question it is if he said, I disown you. You go to hell. And we know that he will never do that because there was a moment where his one true son on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, Christ experienced being disowned in our place. So whatever pain or hardship we might go through in this life of God's fatherly discipline and chastisement that can feel like death sometimes, we know that we're never being cast off. And that ought to be the motivation to 
be renewed, to be enabled, to be empowered more and more, die to sin, live to righteousness. Father God, help us know and understand these truths more and sink our roots down deep in them. And just like Matthew Henry said, may we mentally grasp onto all of these theologically beautiful principles, not just so we can get an A on a seminary exam, but so that the practice of our life would be beautiful and pleasing unto you. Lord, may we so experience the reality of justification that we are passionate to run in the road of sanctification for your glory. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.